0: Mr. Burgundy, I'm a professional and I would like to be able to do my job. Mr. Burgundy, you are acting like a baby. I'm not a baby, I'm a man! You are not a man, you are a big fat joke. I'm a man who discovered the wheel and built the Eiffel Tower out of metal and brawn. That's what kind of man I am.
1: Um, I'm trying not to get off that explicit rating this week, man.
2: We, we can have it, it's fine. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, yeah, there are definitely some people who wake up and think I'm gonna fuck with somebody today.
2: Welcome to Paper Round, the show where serious research meets wild speculation. My name is Matt Collin, I'm a David M. Rubenstein Fellow at the Global Economy and Development Programme at the Brookings Institution.
1: And I'm Ronald Sniaker, a Policy Fellow at the Centre for Global Development.
0: I'm Kate Orkin, I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford.
1: You will have noticed that there is a third voice there, which is not normally the case on Paper Round. But given the paper we want to talk about today, we thought it would be uh, sensible to ask Kate to join us. So Kate is a friend of both of ours and a sort of colleague of mine. I'm a DPhil student at BSG. And I think, Matt, did you guys like do your DPhil together or something?
0: Yeah, same cohort.
1: Oh, wow. Like way back in the uh, sands of time. (laughs) (laughs) Pre-history.
2: We also all share the same DPhil supervisor too.
1: Oh, we did? Really? All of us are Stefan's protégés? Yeah.
2: Bound, oh, wow. bound by blood, yeah.
1: I would explain why we're all so great.
0: It's unclear if it's nature or nurture. <laughs> so, Kate, I haven't actually,
1: I don't think I've seen you in person since, like, for, like, 18 months because of all this. How, how are you?
0: I'm I'm doing very well. Uh, My household is recovered. My partner has been working for a long time on the Oxford vaccine team. So I didn't see him for 18 months or so, but things have sort of calmed down and we're going a little bit back to normal. Uh, So I'm in the throes of finishing revisions on two papers, which makes you want to leave academia. But I suppose the finishing thing is is part of the process. Um, So I'm slowly slogging through that, but enjoying the British summer.
2: Randall, how are you doing? What's new in your corner?
1: It's so hard to remember what's new. Like I'm so sleep deprived. I've got a nine month old baby who hasn't slept for more than three hours at a stretch for nine months. And and he also just gave me an illness, which makes it sound like I've got COVID. I don't. I've been tested twice, but he gave me the worst cold I've ever had in my life. I have no idea how he's surviving and cheerfully going about his day. When he's got this virus, sort of like this petri dish of vi- uh, viri swimming around in him. So I- I'm terrible and I'm probably going to start hacking during the middle of this podcast. But apart from that, you know, you know, life is ticking on. How about you, Matt?
2: Well, speaking of hacking, I just released a new working paper a couple of weeks ago uh, based on data that was obtained through a hack. Uh, like a ha- but Matt,
0: you haven't told us the title. What's the title of the paper?
2: Yeah, of course. Uh, the title is "What Lies Beneath: Evidence from Leaked Account Data on How Elites Use Offshore Banking." Oh, man, man, man. Me, I'm let, not sure let, we
1: can. I'm not sure we can. I'm not sure we can trust leaked data, right? There's always got to be an ulterior motive. It's not going to be uh, representative of the universe of data, right? How can you?
2: Pre- I mean, that's 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 a great point. I, I'll get to your point at the end, but let me uh, let me first just tell you a little bit about the setup. You know, we we worry a lot about international tax evasion, about people Do we? storing Why? their wealth. Uh, we, uh, uh oh I'm just God. not sure
0: this is a fundamentally important question. Does evasion really matter? I mean,
2: it only matters
1: to the extent that you think that the state can spend money
2: well. Oh, Jesus Christ. So listeners will note that uh, I'm really struggling to get into the introduction of my paper here. And this is something that quite a lot of us that work in economics, especially those that, that work in academia, face every day. And, and that's when we give seminars, particularly econ seminars, are quite frequently interruption-heavy. People jump in uh, when they want to, to ask clarifying questions. But often the perception that, at least I have, and I think a lot of others have about econ culture, is that those interruptions can be quite rude, they can be disrupting, they can immediately give you a sense that you're not communicating very well to the room. And that's kind of lead into the paper we want to talk about today.
1: Yeah, so the paper is called Gender and the Dynamics of Economic Seminars, it has the most wonderful collection of co-authors. Pascaline Dupas, Alicia Sassa Modestino, Muriel Niadere, Justin Wolfers and the Seminar Dynamics Collective, which sounds a bit like the Tang Clan. <laughs> uh, they have stepped into the 36 chambers of doom. That is to say, what they did with this paper is they sat in the back of a bunch of economic seminars and they recorded all those rude interactions that were going on. At part, the paper is really simple. It just looks at a basic question. Do women get treated differently in the economics discipline? And the answer is, and this will shock, absolutely shock anybody who spent any time in the university, is yes, yes, women get treated worse than men do in economics seminars, or at least in their data set.
2: So the, the main result is that uh, women are asked more questions, and, and asked more questions are likely to be uh, hostile or patronising. Does this pass like the very basic smell test? Kate, you're like actively involved in this community right now. Is this your sense of how things still are?
0: So I think the one in terms of smell test is just as a chime with your experience. And I mean, one of the interesting things about COVID has been because seminars are given on Zoom, co-authors are much more able to go to each other's seminars than they are before. And a number of my co-authors have noted that there is a difference even in the more constrained Zoom format. And I think there's also, um, you know, one of the things I've often noticed one of the papers I co-author with my advisor, having watched him present it even in person, is that sort of saying exactly the same things, there are points in the paper where, uh, you know, I know one of the papers quite well, there are points where I would definitely get interrupted where he sails through authoritatively. The
1: most serious attempt that we have seen to address a question or a problem that quite a few people have anecdotally noted which is that the Economic Seminar culture is not great in many ways and it's particularly not great for women. Taking a step back for a second, before we go into like the data collection and so on, you were saying that like when you present on Zoom and with your co-authors, you noted the difference. That's like noting the difference within economics, that's quite a nice comparison because they're presenting the same research. There's also a huge difference across disciplines right because you know Kate you and I work in a public policy school or well you know I study in a public policy school and you work there. At PSG the, the seminars they feel very different don't they? When we just walk 15 minutes up the road to the manor house building the seminars are really different. There's much less interruption during the first five minutes of a seminar. On this question just a headline finding past the smell test For me, it really does on two grounds. One that, as you've just said, there's the gender aspects. It it changes with experience. The other side of that is that. Is this an econ problem? And that also shines with my experience, as limited as that is.
0: Agreeing with that, I think they, they also make quite a lot of effort to look at whether the supplies across different fields, although they note that in a number of the fields, they're limited in their analysis because they simply don't have enough female speakers. But I think they do, for example, note that uh, in one of the parts of the analysis that uh, in macro in particular, this discrepancy seems pretty big. Not to call that discipline out too much, but I think it does come up that particular fields may develop different cultures
2: it might be worth backing up briefly for a moment for listeners who may not be intimately familiar with economic seminars I think one of the things that's fairly unique about econ seminar culture and something that's obviously clashing with the fact that econ in general has a pretty big gender problem there's a nice quote by Deidre McCloskey in which she notes that the main goal of uh, economic seminars are to find where the bodies are buried in the sense that you're presenting a piece of work. In modern economics, it would often be a piece of work that's very uh, heavily empirical in nature. There's lots of assumptions behind your results. And it's your job to present this piece and in, in many ways uh, defend this piece against a crowd whose probably main objective is to figure out what's, what are the weaknesses of your work. I think uh, originally with the ultimate goal of trying to make the piece stronger and trying, of trying to improve your research, But obviously in some situations it can create kind of a combative, often hostile environment between the speaker and and their audience. And when you combine that fairly combative environment in which these people are trying to seek out the, 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 the critical weaknesses of a paper, if you combine that with what we already know is a pretty heavy degree of sexism in econ culture, that's where you get the kind of environment that's going to generate the results that we're seeing in this paper. There are two types of seminars that this paper considers uh, that are worth discussing, and then we can get into the details of, of what the paper finds. So the first is a fairly standard departmental seminar. So most departments have a couple of different seminars dedicated to very specific fields within economics. You know, For example, there might be one for applied micro, there might be one for development economics, and, and so on. And these are often the most common seminars that people in a department will go to. Uh, you're going to see your your colleagues there, your fellow students, your professors. There will sometimes be an outside person presenting, but on average, these are more likely to be more collegial, more friendly environments than other types of seminars. The other type of seminar that they look into for this paper are these, are what are called job market seminars. These are are very different in nature. They are the person will be one of five people being flown in to give a job talk. They're going to be, you know, potentially hired as a tenure-track person. The stakes are a lot higher, and not only for the person presenting, but also many more people from the department will come because they are in many ways selecting their future colleague. And I think most people would agree that job market talks are, on average, a lot more combative, a lot more aggressive than your standard departmental seminars. So these are the two types of seminars that they consider in this paper in, in which they sent these undercover people that record the dynamics of the seminar.
1: We can call them the Rutan Clan, it's okay. So actually, can I ask you guys a question? Because you guys are much more like, well, you guys are academics. And I'm not really, I'm just a student still. So like, my impression is that the internal and external non-job market seminars are still pretty high stakes. You're presenting in front of people who will very often be the editors of the journals who you will eventually be submitting to, right? If your seminar gets derailed by angry man number three or angry person number three, I should say, at the back, do you think that harm um, your chances of publication?
0: I would say it's uh, the stakes are different. I think that job market papers are sort of supposed to be polished or as, po- you know, polished as people are able to get them by that that point. Whereas I think the expectation with uh, work in progress is more of the the sort of thing you guys were talking about earlier of you put a piece of work out there that's you know, you've done a lot of work on, but is it a point where you want to get feedback and you're still intending to do a lot of work to integrate the feedback? Actually, people tend to deliberately present work that isn't completely polished. A, because uh, mostly the people who are invited are faculty and B, because uh, there's just a, a bit of a different expectation of the, the extent to which the paper is finished. I think the stakes are a bit different for the two things. And most of the people who are invited are faculty. So then uh, they're in uh, tenure track jobs or more often than not they're more senior so they've, they've got tenure already um, so then the, the stakes are pretty different.
1: That is interesting to me because I always sort of sitting in those seminars it always felt like reputation plays a big role in them still. I'm not going to name names because that's just a bad idea for me right now <laughs> but, <laughs> but I've sat in the Department of Economic Seminar in Oxford where a very very well-known economist was giving a presentation that I was like, the people who were sitting around me were sort of like passing notes to each other saying this is full of holes. And nobody, nobody really sort of asked them any questions about it. There were a couple from equally gigantic figures in the field, I guess. Then in the same seminar series, you get sort of younger people and I've seen them, you know, it's like a scene from Jurassic Park. I genuinely don't know, actually. Is this kind of almost like a crucible that you have to pass through to become one of these giants in the field, you have to show that you can get through all this, that you can survive it? Or is there a selection thing going on? And it's always seemed a bit weird to me.
0: Yeah, it is an interesting thing. I think they're you know, they're obviously focusing with this data set on a, on a different issue. So they do disaggregate between the regular seminars and the, the job talk. And I think they control for the seniority of the speaker, their citation counts and so on. But I don't think they were actually doing analysis on that. I, I definitely think the dynamic that you've picked up is probably true, that people get less of the sort of very vocal criticism as they're sort of progressing in their in their careers. But I think also people would, even if they were asked a question, that was pretty confrontational. I think with stature, people get more confidence just to shut it down. People tend to respond more to them shutting it down than uh, they do when, when people are juniors. So it's there's a sort of endogenous reaction. Like people don't ask the question because they know there's no point in getting into that sort of interaction.
2: No, that's a good point, yeah. As Ranul referred to, this Seminar Dynamics Collective or the Wu-Tang Clan is a group of, I think, largely graduate students across 30 different institutions. These are largely top economics programs in the United States, something we might return to later on because dynamics in the top US institutions may be quite different than those in, in, in lower ranked universities. And what they did is they recruited a, a large pool of coders. These are people that were going to be in seminars anyway. They go to seminars you know, as part of their weekly schedule, no matter what, and they sat in the back of the seminars with basically a tablet or a phone or a laptop open, the same things you might have open anyway, if you're taking notes at a seminar, or you know, as some of us do, checking Twitter is, off, is also the thing that we also do uh, when we're not that interested. And they had basically open a Qualtrics, which is like a survey tool, a Qualtrics tool, which allowed them to record every specific moment where someone asked a question to the presenters. They would record the exact timing of the question, the length of the interaction between the two, the gender of the person asking the question, They also recorded the gender of the person giving the talk at the beginning and the total number of people in attendance as well. They didn't have to, but if they thought that the question had some emotional quality to it, if they thought it was hostile or patronizing or maybe even supportive or clarification in in intent, they recorded that attribute of the uh, question as well, but they didn't have to. So for most of the questions, they didn't actually... Attach any of these characteristics to, they just recorded the timing, the length, and and so on. They did this for a large number of seminars and also a large number of job talks as well. And that gave them, as we've described before, this pretty rich data set on who the presenters are, how many people attended their talk, how many men, how many women, and what kinds of questions they asked, and also whether or not the people asking the questions were relatively junior, graduate students, or postdocs, or relatively senior tenured faculty and, and, and the like you know but we worry a lot about measurement in these situations right you have like a person uh, sitting in, in a lecture hall giving a very subjective assessment of what's going on would that make us worry a little bit that there's going to be bias and in, in how these responses are recorded what do you think about that Kate?
0: I think one key thing they checked was the what they call intercoder reliability. So there are instances where there the, are two coders sitting in the same seminar um, and they compare their coding of interactions. And I think they get a 0.92 correlation between coders sitting in the same seminar, which is extremely high. Like people do this for other sorts of things like classroom observations and education. And you wouldn't see a, a sort of correlation coefficient between coders that would be that high. So I think that suggests there was a lot of agreement within the coders about how they coded things. That's not the same thing as saying that the coders don't come with some bias. So they note that the uh, the pool of people who volunteer to be coders is perhaps unsurprisingly has a lot more women in it. Um, and, you know, potentially they might think that people who uh, view dynamics and seminars in a particular way might be more likely to sign up to code. There's nothing that they are able to do about that in the analysis. They note it. Um, they do run an implicit association test to try and get a sense about whether the coders are biased against career women.
2: What is, uh, for listeners who aren't familiar, what is an implicit association test?
1: Basically, like they give you a bunch of words, and if I recall correctly, like the different colors, and you're meant to pick the matching word or your emotion that you associate with it something like that am I am I completely wrong Kate
0: Yes I think that's correct and I think they I think they code your reaction time so I think if you have a pairing which is like a uh, woman strong um, and you have to agree or disagree with it and then I think that your strong implicit associations are where you agree very. Quickly.
1: If, if you go in knowing, like, if I fail this test, I'm not going to get offered this job, you might spend like five minutes going, so I have to click agree, I have to click agree, yeah. and then they'll know that you actually are, you know, biased as hell.
2: <laughs> so the, the coders in general didn't seem to score much differently on these implicit association tests than we would expect them to, right, so that was a sign that maybe they're not necessarily too biased in, in, in the way that they're recording these responses.
0: Yeah, so they interestingly find that even this group of coders are are biased against career women. Not sure if that tells us something about the test or the coders but i think they do also make the point that you know potentially this group of people have been socialized in a particular environment so they might be more used to this sort of interaction than the average person so i think they basically own it that you know it is a particular group of coders but there isn't a lot you can do about that other than saying that they do achieve this very high congruence in the way that they're coding the samples
2: so they they've got these the sample of about 330 regular seminars and about close to 250 job market talks what was their main result women are asked more questions on average right
0: so i think that's sort of how it's presented in the abstract and they're saying this occurs whether or not we add in a whole bunch of different controls so controlling for the seminar series, uh, where the, the talks occur, the topics. And for the job market talks, they actually control for the subsequent outcomes of the, the candidates. So they try and control for a measure of candidate quality. They look at the institution, I think, that the sort of subfield, the kind of area that the paper focuses on. So they're basically trying to check whether this result is robust to uh, a number of, of different controls, and they find that it is. I think that you know highlighted in some of the coverage of the talk has been something that is perhaps highlighted a little bit less in earlier drafts of the paper. It comes up a lot more um, in the, the most recent draft is this big difference between the job market talks, um, which are more junior women presenting in potentially more high-stakes environments and with a more regular seminar series. And they actually find that the, the extent to which women are asked more questions than men is much bigger for these junior women who are in this high-stakes environment. So I think that was one of the um, results that has been drawn out more in, in later versions of the paper and is probably quite important.
1: How should we, how should we think about that? Is that clearly obviously a bad thing? What should that make us think?
0: So I think it's quite hard to know what's going on and probably a lot of different things are going on at the same time. Uh, You know, one of the things that's different about job talks is that people from many different fields attend the same seminar. There are a lot of people who are in the seminar who wouldn't be familiar with the methods or the particular style of the subfield. So I think that may, and they do indeed find that job talks have way more questions asked of them it's impossible to disentangle that dynamic you know the the very interfield nature of the talk from the fact that it's a more junior person presenting to a more uh, senior set of colleagues and also the fact that potentially the audience has more stake in finding the holes because they are trying to decide whether they bring this person on as a colleague as opposed to just sort of sitting through somebody's seminar. So all of those things are different between the two groups and it's quite difficult to tell which of those things is driving the difference. I don't think there's anything they could do about that in the paper. But I think it's worth noting that we shouldn't immediately jump to this is because it's more junior women that are facing this issue. I think there are a number of different things going on that can't be separated.
1: But none of that takes away from the fact that there's still that big gender gap. I think it's also worth pointing out that it's not just a big gender gap. It's an insane rate of interruptions. On average there's an interruption like every two to three minutes in the seminar. The range of that. The worst seminars have 69 questions I think in a 90-minute seminar. Which is just wild, right? So it's already tough. But then the gap, the gender gap is big as well. extra tough for women versus men. And like in a job market talk, you'd still have the men are facing all those same things. They're also junior men. They've got an audience of people who won't necessarily be familiar with their specific field or their methods and so on. And all the audiences got the same high stakes. So the, 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 the gender gap couldn't be anything about those things.
0: Yes, I think that's I think that's completely right. You know, the paper does actually say two things descriptively it says something about the field even though we're not comparing it to other fields. Uh, and then also on top of this there's the uh, there's the difference between the genders. And I think I agree with you. I think that's a that's a really important point. You know, they they note that women are getting different treatment and they they also are very careful to say we can't see how this affects people's downstream outcomes, but I think it is really worth bearing in mind that this affects men as well um, and I know from my colleagues that uh, a lot of male speakers find the experience when they particularly when they're starting out in academia extremely nerve-wracking. The, I agree with you Ranul I think the the level effects are as uh, potentially as important as the the gap between the genders. So
2: uh, what sorry right as I speak a helicopter flies over my head which is par for the course in DC. Is
1: that a sort of chorus of angry seminar participants outside <laughs> your
2: so like one thing, one question I have about why these gender dynamics are, are manifesting is is kind of a, around what kind of sexism are we are we talking about here? So one of the results that comes out of the paper with regards to how many questions you're being asked is in a lot of these talks, you're actually seeing more questions by female faculty as well. So I guess a question I'd have for both of you, I'd love to get your thoughts is, is this about people, both men and women in economics, having more sexist views about who should be in the profession or how they should be presenting or the quality of their work? Or is this people being on average more afraid of aggressive men in seminars? Both those asking questions, but also those giving presentations. I know that if, if I'm like at a presentation, it's a really senior man presenting, I can imagine people being a little bit more hesitant to speak up and and criticize a paper than if it's a junior woman. And I'm wondering to what extent is it our perception of the presenter as being high quality or is it our perception of the presenter as being someone that I can interact with in a non-hostile way?
0: So I I think that's super important. And it's one of the things I found really interesting, learning how to present in an economics context, as opposed to other places where I did kind of public speaking. So I did competitive debating when I was in undergrad um, and in, in high school. And so you, you end up with quite a lot of interaction in what are fairly antagonistic settings. And what's been really interesting to me about uh, moving from that into the sort of seminar presentation has actually been the extent to which you moderate yourself in the way that you come across so as not to come across as confrontational or aggressive. And I would say I notice that of female colleagues who are also friends. I'm not sure if it's a conscious thing or just something that you respond to how past seminars have gone. But I would say that people are a little bit, or women, are potentially present in a way that's a little bit calmer, more polite, less confrontational, than they would be in the way that they interact naturally in conversation with people who are their friends where where there there aren't any stakes. And so I think there although the people they're very careful to control for quality of the output that's being presented, I think the one key thing that's missing here is is about tone of the speaker and the extent to which the speaker is welcoming questions. Now we know from sort of other research on gender that's been done that women, whether it's conscious or unconscious, internalize the way that people respond to them when they're aggressive, they then will choose to present themselves differently. And so I'm trying to phrase it quite carefully because I I don't want to be characterized as kind of blaming the victim, but I think there may be some sort of interim thing that's going on where a woman presents in a way that's slightly more welcoming of comment and interaction And often, um, so for example, one tactic that I've I've seen women use quite a lot is, you know, someone interrupts them, they give an answer and they then say, have I satisfied you with that answer? I don't know if that's anecdotal, but I've I've never seen a male speaker do do that, and so I think there may be some of that going on, and that might account for some of the results kind of in the middle of the distribution. I think then there's a different thing of how these crazy seminars that just get derailed, like does that happen to more to men than to women? And it could be that there are those two different things going on at the same time. I definitely don't want to say that the women whose seminars get derailed like that's their fault, because I you know I don't think it's anybody's fault, but we are socialized beings We're also reflecting our past experiences in the way that we interact.
1: Sometimes it's somebody's fault. I've been in seminars where there is definitely somebody who woke up that morning and decided, I'm going to fuck with somebody today. We've all been in that seminar where someone's asked a question. You know, maybe it's a good question, maybe it's not. They get an answer and they just will not take that answer. They won't let the person go on. And I I I saw something on Twitter. Somebody told this story where it's a senior female tenured economist. I can't remember which one it was, actually. I spent too much time on Twitter, so I can't, I can't remember who said anything anymore. She told a story where she turned to a male colleague and said, I'm sure that this person has not managed to come up with an answer to your question in the 30 seconds since you last asked it. So can we please move on? There are seminars like that. And Beatrice Chariere, she's on Twitter as, you know, as the undercover, undercover historian. She put up a picture recently, which was a description of the seminar culture that Alexander Geschenkron cultivated in Harvard. And it sounds awful. It sounds like the point was intimidation and terror. That seems mad to me. Nothing you said there sounded like victim blaming There, Kate. If you are in a hostile environment and you take protective action, and that protective action is a lower equilibrium than the perfect world where there's not a hostile environment, it's still probably better than what it would be if you didn't take that protective action.
0: Yeah, so potentially you have a calm, friendly manner that invites more questions, but it means people don't absolutely go after you. Um, And I do think that that is something that female speakers do. And there weren't as many women in our research group when I was doing training as there are now. Um, I've certainly never had somebody consciously say that to me as a strategy. But you also watch how other people, uh, you know, role models do it. um, And then you kind of learn from that behavior. So I think it's, it's very possible that that would be something that's going on.
2: I mean, that's a good segue into the, um, the next main result of the paper, which I mentioned before that the coders are, are indicating whether or not these questions are supportive, patronizing, demeaning, or hostile in nature. And they, they find that mainly in these job market talks that women are more likely to receive questions that are coded as patronizing, disruptive, demeaning, or hostile. So, despite them possibly, as as you say, Kate, taking some preemptive action to create kind of a, an inviting environment where questions can be asked in, in a non-hostile way, they still seem to receive slightly more of these types of questions than men do. And uh, not apparently a whole lot. By some measure, it, everyone gets like one per job talk or so. But even that one hostile question can be enough to derail things.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think there's also a question of do we think that any questions of that nature are are necessary? I mean, one of the things I think, Ranul, you were saying people may cultivate a particular culture. I think there is a, a school of thought that says, well, this is efficient. You know, this is the best way to just like we believe in markets that kill zombie firms, we believe in interactions that kill um, (laughs) terrible papers. And so, um, you know, we need to weed these things out before... (laughs) before they're allowed to, like, I don't know, if people think they'll get into a journal by mistake or something. So I I think there is an element of the discipline that might think that this is an efficient way to get people to learn really quickly. I think my question would be whether we can get the same culture of sort of interaction and honest feedback without some of the more hostile elements.
2: The other difference, though, is that I think we all want an environment that kind of weeds out the bad work or improves it. But there's a difference between a world in which you have you know, like with journals, you have multiple reviewers independently assessing the quality of a piece of work in one in which you have a group of people that could potentially turn into a mob in the sense that one person's view of the paper may contaminate another person's view. Right. And the and the tenor of the discussion can sometimes lead to a situation where an, a whole room is turned against a presenter, perhaps unfairly, just because one particularly strong personality, has decided that they, they don't believe in the result.
1: One thing I've started introducing in uh, recruitments is we no longer talk about each candidate straight after the uh, recruitment process. We all independently write down scores and rank preference, then we send them individually to a third party who then opens them all at once and puts them together so we can't influence each other in exactly that way. And I've found anecdotally that there's much more diversity in rank preference than there used to be, I think. And I'm very talkative, like I'm a fairly loud, reasonably kind of, I have strong opinions. Everyone always says this to me, my opinions are too strong. (laughs) So I feel like I have probably influenced other people in the past by not following that kind of process. And it's only in the recent couple of years that I've really sort of become more aware of that. But actually, I, I wanted to back up slightly and talk about the sort of, is this an efficient equilibrium question, right? Because I really strongly don't think it is. For one particular reason is that I come from a policy background and we often have the same papers presented. I have now multiple times seen the same paper presented to a group of policymakers and to a group of academic researchers. When you go in with the motivation that, I want to find the weakest point in this paper, I want to find the soft spot and I'm going to punch the knife in. By the time you're getting a paper presented, it's pretty good normally. The soft spot's not that soft. And you could be focusing on something that's completely orthogonal to the actual importance of the question, the size of the finding, why we should care about this in the real world. And you wind up, that's how you get the 95 page papers, with 400 robustness tests to prove that actually, you know, bootstrap my standard errors, make them robust in this way, and I can cook them in chocolate, and it still comes out as significant. Meanwhile, in the policy seminar, people are like, okay, even if you're off by a factor of 10, this still really seems to matter. And because it really seems to matter, let me now ask you, what do we do about it? Like, let me focus on the substantive question. And as academics, that not that what we're here for? I appreciate that there is a branch of academia which has to be super rigorous about these methods and you'll get right down into those details because that's how we progress and that's how we can answer new questions and so on. So I'm not saying that I think it's completely the wrong equilibrium. I I just find it really hard to think that where we are is optimal for social welfare. And not just, you know, the mental health of the economist, which is clearly awful for.
2: Yeah,
0: I mean, I I would stand up a little bit for the the whole poking. I think it really helps. I can still think of points people have made to me in a seminar five years ago. I'm still trying to answer that question. And, you know, it was a really good one and it really helped. And I do think that the discipline encourages more interaction and, you know, you bring your whole self to a seminar. You need to sit there, you concentrate, you listen, you're not on your computer. You're expected to be interacting and kind of giving the speaker something back. Which is really not an expectation in a lot of other fields. So I do think that that's a really important function of the sort of seminar series, and it's not sycophantic. You know, you I think often people come up to you afterwards and say, "I really like that piece of work," even if they've been very critical in the seminar. So you know, provided people make the effort to do that, you are learning more, you are getting more from the criticism, and you know, probably if you want to be in that kind of space, you enjoy that, you enjoy trying to uh, get it to be better. I think. The the key thing is the tone. And I think we all know people who are calm, they wait till the end of the seminar, they ask in, in really polite, often kind ways, and they still make something that completely destroys what you've done and you have to start again. <laughs> but I, I think the mental health thing for me is much more tied up with the tone than it is with the content of the question. And I think trying to separate those things is absolutely crucial. With the mental health thing, I was going to say, I think if there's no tone, then it lets people separate their work from themselves. And so they don't feel attacked it's just the work that's being attacked and we're getting working on making the work better and that's just a much happier place for everybody i think
1: just over my whole life i really cultivated the ability to separate criticism of what i've done from criticism of me i'm nearly 40 though so like i've had a lot of time to do that i totally agree with what you just said actually because maybe i think that the dial is somewhere wrong but you're right the whole poking really does matter and it is also it's a question of tone because it's just not fair to a 24-year-old grad student to be a dick.
2: Another thing you learn as you get older, I guess, is that not all criticism is correct or that or there the are reasons that people will give criticism from their viewpoint that may not apply to you in the way that will be useful. And we learned that going through the journal process, right? Because you get referees that just you know, are trying hard to give good criticism, but like actually it's not applicable or they have something wrong. And so you, you really had to separate that moment where you're thinking oh God, this person is attacking me and actually slow down and think, you know, does this actually apply? Is it important? Do I need to internalize it?
1: There's always one person in the seminar who asked the question, why didn't you
2: write this
1: research paper the way I would have written it? Like, why didn't you do it in my field?
2: I wanted to ask then, I should note that this paper is only one aspect in which women are treated differently in the economics profession. There's like a gazillion more. And so some people have responded to this result to say, okay, this is not a very big effect. You know, it's like a 12% increase in questions. But it's actually just one dimension along which women are being treated differently. And those things in aggregate will have impacts. But at least on this dimension in this space, how does one start nudging seminars to be a little bit less aggressive, more thoughtful in nature? Kate, you mentioned that things might be slightly different now in the world of Zoom. But, you know, at some point we're all going to be stuck in a room together again. And like, how do we start to bring in some of those lessons learned from our year in quarantine into into the, the seminar culture?
0: So I think, what I mean, they had an interesting finding in BR samples, so they looked at one particular conference and there was a bit of variation in the sort of structures that were used because a lot of the talks are shorter. And so some of the structures don't mitigate the gender gap, so having a discussant or putting the questions only at the end, but they did find a moratorium on questions in the first 10 minutes Actually, I think undoes the gender gap entirely. Um, So I thought that was a really, a really interesting finding. Of course, there's some selection in which programs are are doing that and not, which we we might have to think about in the results. But I I think that might be one area. I also will say I think just since this paper has come out and there's been more discussion, I feel like the dynamics have changed a lot. Um, And you've seen people both, others intervening, but people sort of. I've now seen a number of times someone saying, "I don't, I don't." Oh, the second time they follow up saying, I, I don't want to be that person, but, um, and, you know, sort of carefully self-moderating. So I, I do think it's just the, the act of doing this has made quite a big difference.
1: So I did my undergrad, I started in 1999, I'm old, and my master's in 2002. And it was inconceivable to me back then that this would be an economic paper that the paper that Arun Advani and co-authors just did about race and how much economists think about questions of racial discrimination. The fact that this paper exists is evidence that things are changing. I actually really like that. I'm inherently skeptical, actually, of a lot of the efforts that we have made about diversity and inclusion in many dimensions, because I've been through so many of them before, because I've been, I've been working on some of these fields for uh, you know a couple of decades now, but it does feel like something's a bit different now, actually. It uh, makes me feel really good, actually.
0: And I think it's also, you know, I've, I've observed a lot of people who are putting together conferences and have control over the format and so on, clearly putting a lot of thought as conveners into how things are going to be structured and making the norms very clear uh, right at the beginning. And so you have seen that with Zoom because people sort of had to reinvent the format. And I think people have played with a lot more things quickly. You know, do we do we have the live text chat available or or not is that actually distracting from the the main point of the whole interaction do we have an active question time at the end or not people have tried like sending the clarifying questions to a moderator who decides whether they're important or not that has actually worked super well and I'd be really interested when you know when things uh, start going back to being presented in person you know you can still have interactive technology being used while you're having a face-to-face interaction and that thing of having a moderator who decides on the clarifying questions is actually super it's You know, I noticed one of the findings was that a large proportion descriptively of the questions were clarifying questions. So I think it's about a third across the different seminars. And it is true that sometimes you can genuinely, a speaker has forgotten to tell you something, but often they're just going to tell you later. And so I think the process of kind of weeding that out or judging how long you can wait to give them a reasonable chance to answer the question, having a senior person doing that works super well.
1: But actually, so on this clarifying question thing, can I ask you guys a question? What do you think of as a clarifying question? There's a number of kinds. There's, can you explain to me what you mean when you say gender dynamics? That's a clarifying question. Then it could also be, why should we care about differential treatment across genders? That's the kind of question like, I mean, and no
2: one would ever ask this anymore. Some econ seminars I can imagine, but yeah. <laughs>
1: That's the kind of question you might get on slide two or three of your presentation. Does it, do you think that would have been coded as clarifying?
0: I would think of clarifying as sort of objective. I want to understand the facts of this paper in the sense of have you done X or have you done Y? I'm accepting the premise of the paper. I'm just trying to understand, you know, how it's been executed.
2: There is the dreaded clarifying before the criticism question, right? Like it's the... Yeah. I'm trying to understand this. Oh, it's this is what you mean. Okay, checkmate, which is what happens yep. right after, right? It's the, the moment where you see them getting everything in, in line for the eventual attack, uh, which does happen far too frequently.
1: That, that, that's fair. I, I wonder if that's how they coded it. You know, that I, I have been in seminars where people ask stuff like, Why do we care about this as economists? And it's all often about stuff that really, really clearly just obviously matters for social welfare. It just might not be what economists have studied before or what these economists have studied or whatever. I I think back to like the Lisa Cook story about how she did that paper about the effects of lynchings on innovation and patents by black Americans. And how long it took her to get that published. The feedback that kept coming back was like, is this really economics, you know, lynchings and, you know, or like, why Why does this matter? Does this have broader relevance? It's that, that kind of question I hear a lot and... Maybe it would be cut to something other than clarify. I I, I hate that kind of question. I always want to ask, I wish I had your confidence knowing what economics is. I wish I knew what economics was as well as you do.
0: I think because everybody outside the discipline seems to think we rove free over every aspect of human behavior. So they're very confused why we would choose not to touch anything because we we know everything about everything (laughs) and write papers on it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's always this interesting question of, you know, how do we decide what's important? And I think that applies in, in many different fields. You know, maybe in, in, we don't have it as much in, in econ, but I think in, in science, there are many discoveries that are of huge practical importance that are not deemed as being scientifically novel or sort of theoretically of general interest those don't get into top journals, even though they have their huge policy importance. So I'm sure it's a, a question that uh, applies in a lot of places and it is, it is difficult disciplines are tribes in some ways the, the unifying factor is coherent taste. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if we think that's a good or a or a bad thing. Because I I do think there's value in in people agreeing on a lens and a way of approaching things, and then they, yeah. um, you know, that helps move a body of knowledge forward. But I agree. I mean, with that that example, I think it really is egregious. Some of the things that you know, you also raising uh, studying gender dynamics in the discipline wasn't something that was acceptable for a while. Like that's probably not a good thing.
1: You could take the probably out of that sentence. Yeah.
0: The one final thing I wanted to draw out, I really liked some of the points others were making about, you know, the broader applicability of this because it was interesting Mm. that they didn't write the intro that way. They were talking just about econ and they clearly had decided, you know, that was how they were going to do it. And it's a beautiful, simple, very clear introduction. But they do then relate it to gender in congressional hearings, the sort of issue of Supreme Court proceedings. Mm. You know, I was thinking about parliamentary questions. You know, there are situations where actually whether or not you're interrupted and how much is, is very high stakes. And so I, I think it would be interesting to draw out, you know, in the discussion about this is partly what we learn about, uh, learn as a discipline about how we behave to each other, but it's also about how gender affects interactions in high stakes professional situations. And then the one other thing I thought I thought about in terms of taking the agenda forward was I thought that point you were making about groupthink is super interesting. So, you know, one thing it would be really interesting to know is say there's a rating of the candidate or the paper at the end of the seminar you don't get a control because you don't see how the sem, you know what people would have done had the seminar played out differently but i, I do think it would be interesting if uh, for example in those seminars where the there was a, a very hostile question if you could compare those to other seminars where there were the same number of questions but there wasn't this like one awful one uh, and then how does that influence other people in the seminar um, and how they how they think because I think that's where it starts to get to the question of does the dynamic of interaction actually have consequences for how people are, are making further decisions? So they didn't look for example at whether the like job candidates I, I mean it's probably not a big enough sample but how they did in the flyouts um, And that to me is uh, you know is a very interesting aspect of it.
2: I mean the groupthink thing also raises the stakes and the reason I thought of it is it, it came from, personal experience. And I guess we're, we're heading this way and talking about our own best and worst seminar experiences in our own careers. But the worst one I ever had was one in which there was one main critic of what I was presenting. And at some point, midway through the talk, I felt like I had to, quote unquote, defeat this person uh, or else lose the entire room. And I didn't defeat this person. <laughs> I, I lost, the, I, I just, you know, in that very high stakes environment, I couldn't think of a response that would satisfy them. And I just saw like the room turn. And if that's going to be the case, that also raises your own level of hostility because you realize you have to knock down these people who are coming at you. And that's definitely not an environment or culture you want to be cultivating, so.
1: You're really, really strongly making me think of that episode of Seinfeld, where George Costanza got insulted in his meeting, where the guy goes, hey George, the ocean call, they're wanting out a shrimp. And then he thinks, like, that night of what his comeback is. So he goes back to the place where this guy works, eats a load of shrimp in front of him to try and induce him to make that insult again so he could come up with his zinger. You
0: know, George, the ocean called. They're running out of shrimp. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, (laughs) right. Well, the jerk store called. They're running out of you. What's the difference? You're the all-time
1: bestseller! <laughs> Not to drag us down a pop culture once again, but you know what you just said about the equilibrium you settle in when you're in this hostile seminar? I think that's a really important point to make as well because what I was thinking through all of this is that we all make allowances for this sort of seminar culture and we all behave in a slightly different way In order to respond to it. That might be about how much we prepare or it could be things around as Kate said earlier how we comport ourselves when we're talking to people do we want to seem more receptive or it might be as you said where you get into a tit for tat where like I am going to break you. Now one important thing is that ironically this is something that macroeconomy macroeconomics has taught us is that small frictions Can lead to very very different equilibria. Your equilibrium can shift quite substantially because of relatively small friction. So I actually don't think these effect sizes are small right? I think 12% is a big effect size for something like this which should be sort of neutral and about knowledge and not about who is trying to give me this knowledge. But that level of friction could lead to a very different equilibrium behavior for women in the profession to men in the profession and that may itself have very big long-term consequences. Consider for example people tend to think that authoritative, confident speakers who maybe are willing to sort of bat aside a question, when you are not perfectly able to judge the quality of their work that might be the heuristic you go to to sort of judge oh that's a great economist there. And if those people are systematically more likely to be men and the people who are systematically more likely to sort of say that's a good point. Let me think about that. Here's my answer. Have I have I responded to you adequately? Are systematically more likely to be women? We already know women are very underrepresented of the top echelons of this profession. That's one thing that this paper can't do and it shouldn't do because it's not like, it's not well placed to do it. But thinking through that chain from the differences that we find in this paper, plus add in all the other stuff that they allude to that women and also people of colour ha- have to deal with in this profession, it builds up into something quite, potentially quite dramatic to what the production function for knowledge is in economics and that in turn could potentially have massive welfare implications. I, I don't want to belabor the point but also you, you, one of the things that I noted with the Biden administration in America is how much of we contrary notices, oh you know what there's a lot of people from different backgrounds here, backgrounds that we don't typically get in advising the White House. If the culture of economics broadly has led to this domination of one kind of person for however many years. That's huge right like I mean there are welfare questions out there like why is childcare in this country so shit? Why is maternity leave in the US so basically non-existent? You know or also like why, why did it take so long for you know certain aspects of racial inequality to become questions on, uh, under policy influence? And it's like who's in the room? Who, who's making policy?
0: I mean, I think those questions are, are studied in the, the literature on policymakers and the sorts of questions that they look at, for example. So I, I, I do think that there are very real uh, welfare implications there the multiple settings in which the findings are relevant. You know, one of the things I would be really interested in is along with the culture shift that's happened about whether the sort of more hostile behavior is acceptable, I would be really interested in what people's tastes are for this sort of more responsive, interactive uh, manner that treats criticism very seriously compared to a manner that sort of brushes off questions. I'm not convinced that people do find it more authoritative, but maybe that, you know, maybe I'm a very detail-oriented person and I like someone who sort of, when they're presenting, really dives into the detail and makes sure somebody's Satisfied with the answer to the question. But, you know, that's why I think the the sort of uh, rating of, you know, if you had people presenting this, you know, you could have co-authors of the same paper presenting the same content, uh, looking at different manners, and then you could also look at both the authority of the speaker and the level and seniority and that kind of thing. Um, but also consciously choosing to adopt these different tones. And I I think that's a really interesting, because I I suspect that along with the culture shift against the hostility of the questioner is a culture shift against these sort of more antagonistic ways of interacting. And I was definitely struck in, you know, I think when we started counting the number of women who were appearing in the seminar series, and then we got a lot more of the sort of young female candidates who just come out of the job market. I remember just being really struck in those those first couple of years when that happened, how different their manner was and then how that seemed to work for them. So I think it, it is an interesting thing that might be changing at the same time that would be would be useful to track. So it's not to say that that isn't that hasn't contributed to where the discipline is at the moment but i also don't think it's there's necessarily past dependence like we might be at a moment where that those sort of tastes for authoritative declarations are diminishing
1: I, I totally agree i guess i was thinking about you know research which seemed to show that people prefer to take advice from people who show less uncertainty that's normally not the right person to take advice from <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. I, I had a friend who quit being a doctor and became a scientist because he said he couldn't handle that the patients wanted him to communicate these certain diagnoses when he knew that there was no certainty and he was just kind of stabbing in the dark.
1: I wish that was my doctor. The doctors who I have interacted with, uh, my son had a few health problems during pregnancy uh, and so on, and uh, he's fine now. The doctors treated cutoffs as if there was some massive discontinuities. Like, you know, if it was 1.96, then, you know, th- th- then we'd have to operate right now. And I'm like,
2: really? And you know, that's the result of some dummy in a regression somewhere, right? That just happened to be significant. <laughs>
0: Someone's probably p-hacking to get tenure anyway.
1: <laughs> I was going to suggest, why don't we, we could ask like, what's your favorite seminar you've ever been to? If you have one.
0: So I watched uh, Michael Kramer and and Willa Friedman give one uh, recently at a CPR function. And it was the first time I've seen, so they they group gave the presentation um, and they did have some tech issues. It was sort of difficult to switch between things, but it was just really nice seeing, you know, one person giving the motivation and someone else, you know, people giving the different parts that they'd quite obviously worked on. So I was super struck by that and I really enjoyed it. It was kind of much more lively than the average one. Um, even though there were some of the tech difficulties.
2: So for me, it was very early on the pandemic. I listened to a paper we discussed on an earlier episode, which is RCTs to scale, Stefano Delavinia's and Elizabeth Lin- Linus's paper. And this was like I had been inside for weeks and I I was doing some yoga while I was listening to it. But then leaned in, and this is the wonderful thing about the early days of Zoom presentations. I typed in a question, which then John List responded to on on on, on read out to them, and I thought. How can I be doing all these things at the same time? And also, I'm really glad no one is looking at me in my yoga pants right now. Was my second thought. So
1: I asked a question. I don't have anything like a spotter story for you, uh, for you guys to tell, but I will say one is that I saw uh, Kaivan Munshi present presented the Manor Road uh, building uh, a couple of years ago now, and I was sat next to Pascal Jopin. and I remember we were like just sitting there like just like giggling at each other going like this paper is so good how is this work in progress and and it was just one of the most impressive things he was just so calm and collected and it was such an interesting idea so well executed uh but yeah no I'm afraid I don't have that much uh
0: you don't have yoga pants
1: I mean I wasn't wearing underpants but um (laughs) (laughs) no and obviously like actually I I take it back. Obviously, the best seminar I've attended in my life was the one I attended that Matt gave like a week ago, in which he appeared wearing a Hawaiian shirt <laughs> on slide three. Uh, that's only just barely beating out this seminar, uh, the seminar that I saw Matt give in which Noreen Karachowala appears in various sort of quizzical poses
2: to describe his data collection process. That was at the CSAE conference. Kate, it's been a real pleasure to have you on the podcast and hear your thoughts about this paper. We hope we can have you on again at some point.
0: Thank you so much for having me and for picking the paper to discuss. I think it's really, it's been really great to see the response of so many male economists to this paper. I think it's been one of the things that a lot of people have been happy about. So thank you for having me on to discuss it as well.
1: Pleasure with all hours. Thank you. We didn't talk about any Marvel stuff this week, Matt. <laughs> but you know, Loki is coming up. Uh, Loki's starting on
2: Wednesday. I'm very excited about Loki.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've rearranged my life to fit... T- t- <laughs> I th- I'm, I'm very sure I've deferred deadlines to make sure that I can
2: watch it. You have Loki and Owen Wil- and Owen Wilson, right? And Richard E. Grant with Neil and Loki. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that went well. I enjoyed that. That was really fun. It was really, actually, really good to hear what she thought of the paper and, like, her experiences. Uh, Not only because she's one of my favourite economists, actually, but um, just because, you know, we have our blind spots, right? And I don't think this was a paper that we could have discussed by ourselves and done any justice to.
2: No, definitely not.
1: What are your plans for the rest of the weekend, Matt?
2: Oh, I'm I'm going to engage in some serious illicit behaviour. I'm going to get inside a room with several friends and we're going to breathe on each other for the first time. So we're all vaccinated. So we're going to enjoy... The ability to be in the same space and to hug each other. It feels kind of like prohibition era, you know, like it should be should be made illegal, but but um a breathe easy. Yeah. No, yeah, exactly a breathe.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right, and I and on that ridiculous note, I feel like we should close we should close this podcast. It's down to serious research. Uh, the the tone was raised by Kate Orkin's presence, and now we're just talking rubbish. So, thank you everybody for listening.
2: See you next episode. Thanks, thank you everyone. Goodbye.